This week, we're breaking away from our normal routine to bring you something a little bit different as we host our first panel discussion. That's right. We're joined by former three-time Space Shuttle astronaut Richard Mike Mullane and professional astronaut wrangler Christina Corp to discuss how to better support and inspire women in the space community. We'd love for you to join the discussion, so please let us know your thoughts over on Twitter at Space and Things One or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. A special thanks to all those who continue to hit the share button or have donated or joined our Patreon page. Uh, But right now, all we want for you is to sit back and enjoy episode 27 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 27 of our podcast. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different, but we've got no spaceflight news at all. Well, we do, but we're just not going to cover it. We'll do all of that next week. Uh, But this is something we've been wanting to do for a while now, and with International's Women's Day happening on the 8th of March, we think this is the perfect time. What you're about to listen to is a panel discussion about how we can best support and inspire women within the space community. While it's fantastic that we're now being able to report stories like the Artemis astronauts who are next going to the moon being a 50-50 gender split, there's still a long way to go. So we decided to ask some people to join that discussion with us. So let's get straight to it. Roger that, Sally. Okay, let's start with some introductions. Christina, let's start with you. Who are you and how do you connect to the wider space community? I'm an accidental space person. So uh, Christina Corp, I am a self-professed astronaut wrangler. Um, I was a singer-songwriter and I used to run a media company in Los Angeles and to take a break and I thought was going to be a nice, quiet, boring job for a little while was I answered an ad in the Hollywood Reporter to work for Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz Aldrin. And I really thought I would do this for a couple of years and I would move on and do something else. And meanwhile, I had the most incredible uh, 12 years uh, with the Aldrin family. And I remember one time another astronaut saying to me, when I said I thought it was going to be a nice, quiet, quiet, boring job, they said, but you grabbed onto a rocket. I said, yeah, but I thought he was a decommissioned rocket. (laughs) I didn't realize he was still active. And so I had a lot of adventures with Buzz. And then I really used my media and marketing and entertainment um, experience to try to uh, raise awareness about Buzz's vision for missions to Mars, especially um, over the last several years. And And then I produced the last five galas at Kennedy Space Center to celebrate Apollo 11. So I am a full-on space cadet now. I'm in. I've Mm -hmm. fallen into the black hole of space and I cannot get out. So I'm a a believer in space for a better world. Excellent. Uh, And Mike, now you? I'm uh, Richard Michael Mullane. I go by my middle name, Mike. I'm a three-time retired space shuttle astronaut mission specialist. Flew early in the shuttle program on the 12th. 27th and 34th flight, although the 34th was actually STS-36, but we flew ahead of two other missions because their payloads weren't ready. 
Uh, so I'm in retirement now, uh, do some speaking on safety. I do a lot of hiking, enjoy uh, being out in the mountains and hiking and snowshoeing. And for the purposes of this conversation, Emily, I'd like you to to reintroduce yourself and uh, and how you connect with the space community because I feel that's important at this point for those who may not have heard before. Okay, uh, my name's Emily Carney. I uh, have a blog on the National Space Society website. Uh, it's about space history. It's called This Space Available. I've been running it for almost eleven years now, which is nuts. And I probably more famously started a group. Uh, about 10 years ago this month called Space Hipsters. Group started with four people and now has over 20, Jesus, like 20,400 people in it, something nuts. So that's what I do in the space community. I'd like to add that the reason I know about Space Hipsters is because Apollo 13 astronaut Fred Hayes said, hey, you heard of these Space Hipsters guys? You guys, you should become a member of that group. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That is amazing. Space Hipsters is also how Emily and I met. Uh, I'm a musician by trade, but I am a space nerd. So I joined a few years back. uh, And when the pandemic hit last year, I decided to use the free time I had to set up a space podcast. And on the the very top of the list of people who I thought would be a great co-host was Emily. So I'm a newbie in the space community, really. Uh, But in my short time of doing this with Emily, there has been a a topic which we have revisited a few times, partly because um, there have been... There have been some great stories which have come out recently about diversity uh, and partly because we've been witnessing a lot of pretty nasty things directed at women within the space community by predominantly angry men who think they know best. Uh, so we wanted to get into this with a go, go more in depth on this and this podcast is the result. Um, now, some people listening may think it's a bit weird that we've asked another man to participate in such a discussion. But the reason we've asked Mike is because he wrote a wonderful book about his life and his time as an astronaut, which is called Riding Rockets. And um, one of the themes that runs throughout this whole book uh, is, is about how his own attitude changed through the years. Um, it, it's written with a level of honesty, which we're just not used to seeing. Uh, and when I read it for the first time, I, it instantly spoke to me. Um, I went to a Catholic boys' school and then went to guitar school where there was only one female student. So even though I considered myself to be a good person, the world that surrounded me very much told me that I was better at life because I'm a man. And I happened to read Mike's book uh, as I was having the realizations that I had this inbuilt sexist attitude, which I needed to undo. Uh, And Mike's story and the way he tells it was essential in helping me face that problem head on and and try and undo those attitudes. Uh, It's a story which I think should inspire many men to hopefully take a look at themselves and ask what more they can do to help fix this. So, Mike, in your own words, rather than me tell it, please... Tell us your story. I came, uh, I'm 75 years old, so I'm a baby boomer. Uh, and in that generation, uh, the generation that I grew up in, I was exposed to a society that portrayed women always in a subservient role. I watched, I loved watching the, and listening to the radio, believe it or not, the radio programs uh, back in, when I was a child, the cowboy movies and the cowboy uh uh, radio shows, uh, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, Hopalong Cassidy, Lash LaRue, all of these. And they were all male dominated. The heroes were the men. There were no super superhero women back in, in my era. So that was there. Then I was raised Catholic, which uh, obviously had some archaic views about the roles of women. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. 
even though it was uh, co-ed, many of the classes were segregated. So uh, I had very little interaction even with girls in, in school, grade school and, and on up through high school. Then I graduated and went to West Point, which was all male. Uh, then I ended up going to the Air Force flying career, and that was all male. And going back to I in my family, I had no exposure to females, basically. My mom, it's a long story here. My dad was crippled for life with polio when he was 33 years old. He was active duty in the Air Force, never walked again. My parents had six kids, all boys except one. We had one, one girl, and she was very young. I think she was like 10 years younger than me, so I had no interaction with her at all. My mom, a beautiful woman, uh, had... <laughs> had more testosterone in her than I did. And she had to raise <laughs> that family of boys and take care of a of an invalid, uh, invalid uh, husband. So I had literally, I had gone 32 years of my life and have never had any real exposure to how to deal with women. I married, but again, a traditional role. My wife was a stay-at-home mom, um, homemaker, mom. You know, she had three children, raised the kids, and the man was the hero that went off to work. So at age 32 was the very first time I became exposed to working with uh, women professionally. And as I documented my book, it did not go down well for me. I think I wasn't the only one. First of all, I came in there, looking back on it, I came in there with the sense that I was superior just because I was a man, because that's what I had seen in all these movies and all these all these situations, you know, the nuns and the priests, the priests were the heroes. They were the they were the, the, the superior to the nuns. You know, the home, the guy was off working was superior to the wife that was at home. You know, so I, I had some very archaic belief systems about women. And it took me a while, and I document that in my book, to learn that, no, being male does not make you superior in any way, shape, or form. I, I rapidly learned that there were people there, that uh, six women were the first female astronauts were in my astronaut class. And I learned right away that they, they were much smarter than me. I mean, I don't say that Packard patronizingly, but uh, certainly I realized right away that, uh, you know, they were physicists and, you know, all had PhDs. Uh, I had a measly master's degree in engineering and, you know, these, these people were really, really smarter than me, academically, book smart. And then uh, I, I still felt, well, because I was in the flying community, I had a leg up on them that I was better in that regard. But then I saw Judy Resnick flying formation in the T-38 off the wing of the T-38 that I was in. And she was flying it in instrument conditions and was tucked right in there just like a, like a pilot and just like I could fly from the backseat. Uh, then I saw her doing the robot arm operations and she was every bit as good as I was at it. So it took me a while seeing this to uh, become aware that Yes, they brought a lot to the table. Their gender did not inhibit them in any way, shape, or form. But it was a it was a process. That's where I was when I walked in there in 1978 in the first group of space shuttle astronauts that had, well, first group of space shuttle astronauts and which had the six women. Uh, three African Americans were also there, and uh, Asian American was also there. Did you feel that NASA at that time had the same viewpoint as you? Or as an organization, do you think it was systemic within NASA or do you think you, because of the, the story that you had prior to that, were a little bit behind other people in that regard no, I, uh, when you first joined? No, I think uh, I think they, the people that uh, put together that selection process uh, and George Abbey, uh, he, I think, did an excellent job of selecting the, the women astronauts. The, 
minority astronauts that he did. Uh, I had some other problems there, but I certainly salute him for what he did in the selection process. I think earlier when they talked about having women and never selected any, uh, that was clearly a, a situation where they were holding back in the in a different generation in their viewpoints toward uh, females. In fact, I remember who's the who's the woman that played uh, Lieutenant Aruhu Aruhu or whatever it is in Star Trek. Michelle Nichols. Nichols is that her name? Michelle Nichols. Yeah, I guess when they approached NASA, approached her to to pump up uh, young women out there on the selection that was occurring to make sure they applied. I read somewhere where she told NASA point blank, says, I'm going to be all basically words to the effect that I'm going to be all over you if this is just a head fake. You're saying, oh, yeah, apply, apply, apply. And then we're not going to select anybody or just one, you know, as a as a token or something. So I think NASA went into my selection at any rate, eyes wide open. You know, we want, you know, qualified women to uh, participate in the space shuttle program. I bet I can't, you know, I, I don't, I had a very small section of NASA that I was looking at at a, at a snapshot in time. You, I don't have any clue about what the greater agencies uh, attitudes were. Yeah, of course. Um, now, Emily was in the Navy and Emily, I'm wondering whether there were any parallels with your experience of, of that in the nineties with what Mike just talked about. Uh, I know it's slightly different eras, but I'm wondering if there was still the same things going on when, when you started. Yeah, I, I apologize. I failed to mention this in my uh, biography. Uh, I joined the military in 1990, actually 96, but I, I didn't go to boot camp until 97. Uh, I was one of the first uh, women nuclear uh, power propulsion mechanics. There was a period where women were allowed on combatant ships in the United States in the 70s, and then that ended. So for about 20 years, women were not on combatant ships. And then in the mid to late 90s, they reopened women on combatant ships. And I was one of the first women to uh, enter that field at the time. It's hard to believe I was a teenager back then. I was 19 years old. So when I first joined the military, like when I went to, to boot camp and um, you go after boot camp, you go to something called a school, which is like your tech school. And then I went to nuclear power school, which is called the dark side because <laughs> you're there for six months. It's really difficult. I did about middle in the class, which for me is like on top of my achievements in life because I'm like, yeah, I just passed. I'm very happy about that. Woo. But anyway, um, when I was in school, there were a few women in the school with me. So, and of course I was in a, you know, base housing, I guess with women so at that time, when I first joined, I didn't really have like a sense of, OK, you know, I'm an other. Plus, I was so young and naive. I knew nothing about that, you know, gender politics or anything like that. Now, when I got to the ship, then things completely changed for me because it was a majority men. Um, I was the first woman in my division. There were a few women in reactor department, but we were all kind of farmed out to different divisions. So. This sounds terrible. Each division kind of got its token woman, and I was the token in my plant. Those of you who've met me in real life, I'm really short and I'm very small. So I show up, I'm a mechanic, and automatically everybody is like, this is a bunch of BS. She's not going to be able to do her job. You know, she weighs about a buck. And there's no way this is going to work out. You know, I, I do want to say there, there are men that I worked with at the time who were very supportive who didn't really buy into that stuff. They just were like, you know, okay, you're going to have to work a little harder to prove yourself, but, you know, I have faith in you. But um, there was quite a bit of, um, 
I don't know how to put it, hostility, I guess. It was it was kind of a difficult time. And I was there for two and a half years. Uh, I had to leave the ship in 2001 because um, I don't want to get into detail, but I developed medical issues. So I was there for about almost three years, two and a half years. Um, it was really difficult, to be honest. Uh, I, I hate to sound negative. We all have imposter syndrome, I guess, where, you know, uh, I don't know if Mike does, because <laughs> he's, he's a former astronaut, so he, his level of imposter syndrome is probably a lot different from mine. But, um, you know, we all have those days where we're like, man, I, I can't do this. I'm just a, you know, I'm just an idiot, whatever. Back then, I heard a lot of, you're too small, you're not going to be able to do this. Or, you know, they shouldn't have let you in this program. Or, I've seen your test scores, you're not really geared towards engineering. I did hear stuff like that, even though uh, my test scores were the same as a lot of my male colleagues. So, you know, whatever. And there are days when, you know, I do still think about that. You know, mm. kind of, it's in the back of your head, like, well, maybe you aren't as smart as you think you are. You're not as awesome as you think you are but um one healing part for me from that kind of that experience um i have to i have stayed in touch with a lot of male friends from that time and um they've they are still really supportive and they've been nothing but cool and they've kind of validated you know what i was thinking like yeah i thought people treated you like like i i didn't think people treated you very respectfully another thing that was kind of healing for me was Honestly, this is going to sound nuts, the space community, being in the space community, even with some of the struggles, you know, that I've gone through because it hasn't been perfect. And, you know, I've done a lot of work in it and it's nice to hear, you know, people sort of validate your, you know, good work that you do. So that's kind of my experience. Hmm. Now, Emily and I have spoken in depth uh, over other podcasts about Judy Resnick and how she was a, a hero for, for Emily uh, as a child. Um, but Emily was a space cadet. Now, Christine, I'm going over to you now. You've said that that becoming a space cadet has come to you later in life. And I'm wondering that when you were growing up, if you were aware of female astronauts, especially that first class as they were getting their flights, were those stories reaching you uh, and inspiring you? First of all, my dad was in the Air Force. So I was born on Chinook Air Force Base in Rantoul, Illinois. Um, and my dad left the air force. Um, he, he only stayed in for 12 years and then we moved uh, to South Dakota where my mom is from. I was one of 10 children, five girls, five boys. And so what's interesting for me is, and I always say this, like we would be a good case study, our family, because I was, uh, I have an Irish twin, a brother who's 11 months older than me. And then I have a brother who's a year, year and a half younger. So I was in between boys. And so I was a total tomboy. So I always really loved sci-fi, but I have to tell you, I really didn't know much about space. And it really wasn't until, you know, the space shuttles started going up and I was in school and we would watch them at school, you know, that you became aware of it. And of course, as a kid, you learn about the Apollo missions, you learn about Neil and Buzz, like that's in every history book, you know, all over. So you always know that. I le I mean, I come from a musical family. We were musicians. We started a family band. We were like the real live Partridge family. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. I played in bars every night starting at the age of 12. That's how we supported our family. I played my own prom. Um, I, so I left my family band at the age of 22 to go to Los Angeles to be a rock star. 
And so I toured all over the world singing for major artists. I was signed to Warner Brothers. I made a couple of records. I sang with Ringo Starr. I, I had a rock star lifestyle before I met Buzz. Through all of this, I loved space and sci-fi. I was always a Star Trek fan and Stargate fan and, you know, all, everything space, you know, Babylon 5, all that stuff. And when I answered the ad for, to work for Buzz Aldrin and I started to work for him, I did not know that there was more than Neil and Buzz who walked on the moon. And so I got quite an education for the past 13 years. And actually the first year was quite, quite an education for me to learn about the 12 men who walked on the moon and the 24 astronauts who reached the moon and that whole era. And then of course, all of this getting, being very privileged to get to know the Apollo astronauts, like firsthand be ex being accepted into the Apollo circle. I never was awestruck. I was never like, I think if I was someone else who grew up with these guys' posters on my wall, I would have never been able to do this job. I'm opposite of Emily, which is, well, first of all, I have a deep voice. And so I've had many a, a guy tell me how authoritative I sound, <laughs> number one. Number two, I'm tall, I'm 5'10". And so I've never, I always say I'm the size of an average size man. And so I've never felt intimidated, you know, being around men. But honestly, it's mostly, I think, because my father treated us girls no differently than our brothers. As a matter of fact, I feel like we had to do a lot more work than our brothers yeah. did, do a lot more hard stuff than our brothers did. And in adulthood, the girls have done better on average than the boys in our family. But anyway, going back to the astronaut thing, you know, I, I got accepted pretty early and the guys were very flirtatious, you know, I mean, astronauts are astronauts and the Apollo guys especially were, you know, pretty, some of them were pretty flirtatious. But what I really appreciated about Buzz, and this is kind of going back to Mike and you saying you're, you're growing up, it was the opposite for Buzz. He was surrounded by women. He had sisters on either side. He had his mom, he just worshiped. His grandmother was like the matriarch, Mama Moon, they called her, his grandmother from the moon side of the family. And all his aunts and his cousins who were uh, girls, that's who he grew up with. So interestingly, Buzz was always my kind of my advocate, like when I would be in groups with these people. And, and incidentally, before that, my mentor was John Tesh Media. You, you probably don't know who he is, David, but nope. um, he was a big TV personality here in America. And when I started out, I was his assistant. And then he basically said, you know, if you want to learn how to run a media company, I'll take you under my under my wing and I'll show you everything you want to know. So the, the, the interesting thing for me is men have always been my mentors and I've had a lot of allies with men. And I think that that's such an important thing to remember alongside the, you know, the guys who are jerks or don't treat women equally. Equally, it's also important to remember the guys who are also very supportive, like you said, Emily. And Buzz was always that way with me, even when other guys weren't. I remember a driver one time, like trying to navigate Los Angeles. And I was like, no, 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 you should go this way. And he was like, let me handle it, little girl. And, mm -hmm. and Buzz <laughs> said, no, 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 you need to listen to her. She knows what she's talking about. She Go, go the way she said. And he's like, okay. And then that's what I appreciated. He's always did that. He would always say, no, 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 talk to Christina. She knows what she's talking about, you know? And so that part, I think, really helped me out a lot 
But I will say, I have met some astronauts, and I, I'm not going to name anybody, but there was an astronaut who said to me once, and, and I think he was commiserating with me, and he didn't even realize what he was saying, but he was complaining to me that he didn't get to go to space the third time because they were going to let a woman go for the first time. And I said, he was saying, can you believe that? I didn't get to go a third time because they were going to let some woman go. And I said, do you realize who you're talking to? <laughs> I may have a deep voice, but I'm a woman. <laughs> like, do you understand how hard it is for us to get to that point? And then he was like, oh, well, still, you know. And so, Mike, I think it's wonderful that you acknowledge, like, that you kind of grew up this way it was kind of the way you were raised. And then you came to this realization, like, hold on a second, it, this perception that society kind of builds into how guys are supposed to think or anyone's supposed to think is not reality. And when you're faced or, or when you encounter other people, especially women or whatever, who are just as smart or just as capable, I appreciate when a guy will say, wow, yeah, they deserve to be here, you know, and acknowledging that. I do think I want to comment on one more thing that society also teaches women, though, to doubt ourselves a bit, even when we're just as, you know, as capable as a guy, you know, sometimes we do like hold back and we're afraid to say I'm a lot. I can do that, too. Now, I, I'm not that afraid. I'm a pretty bold woman. Um, I could, you couldn't have done my job working with Buzz Aldrin and, and dealing with the Apollo guys and not be able to hold your own. Um, the way that I have. But even all of that being said, there are times where you as a woman, though, do think, oh, I shouldn't speak up in here because they're not going to like it, you know, when you're the only woman in the room. And then sometimes I'm just like, ask her it. And then I do. <laughs> and then I do it anyway, you know. Interestingly, the, the whole space thing, going back to space and what you said, Emily, about it healing you or opening up. The thing that I will say that I truly, truly love about space is how it really reminds us that we're all humans on the same planet. And mm -hmm. I think that that is that realization, especially for astronauts who get up above the earth and see that that's the camaraderie that I appreciate both across, you know, no matter colors or, or nationalities or whatever, this kind of pursuit and, and realizing, you know, our humanity, that's the part that I think um, and the ideals of what we aspire to with space, I think is really, really valuable viewpoint. So I think most of the people in space, I think have those ideals. I absolutely do think that there are some people that I, you know, I've, and I know you know this too. I, you know, I've got a decent amount of followers on Twitter. And sometimes if I post something positive about a woman on Twitter, I lose followers, which I always think is hilarious. Because I think they know I'm a woman, right? They know <laughs> they can see I'm a woman. Why wouldn't I want to support women? Um, so that that's an interesting thing for I think people who love space who maybe don't mm. think of space the way that I do in the higher ideals of how it reminds us that we're humans on the same planet. Absolutely. I want to just go back to where you talked about allies. Uh, in in my world, in the music industry in the UK, we have a charity called Safe Gigs for Women. Uh, which was set up to to raise awareness about the far too common and often unreported crimes uh, of women getting abused at gigs. And Tracy, who set this up, she gives a wonderful talk about the importance within this discussion of men talking to men. Uh, she says that it it might you might you might be a great guy, uh, but you almost certainly know someone 
who does make sexist jokes or does objectify women or, or, or worse. And unfortunately, that person is probably not going to listen to a woman. And, and that's the horrible irony in all of this, that in order for the treatment of women to improve, it requires men to be involved. Uh, and this also goes to the core of the discussion on how we best support women in the space community. We need allies to uplift voices, but also to talk to those who aren't living up to the standards, which, as Christina points out, are laid bare in the space community, that we are all humans on the same planet. And I think it's really important that we have this conversation. But how do we reach those people that aren't living up to that standard? Uh, and I hope that it's not a case of simply rooting them out because... The, the the answer is we have to get them to address the problem, I think, personally. I, I just like to add something. Um, you, you know, Christina was talking about, you know, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin was one of, you know, her biggest advocates and stuff. And I do have to say it's very ironic for me because one of my biggest advocates in my career, and I think everybody knows this, was an Apollo astronaut. And, you know, everybody thinks, oh, those guys, you know, born in the 30s and you know, they're, they're probably real sexist and stuff like that. And people actually have asked me, like, what are those guys like? I bet they're really, like, you know, pat you on the butt and stuff. And I'm like, no. Like, the ones I've worked with are... I've worked with a lot of um, guys, especially the Skylab guys, <laughs> because that's one of... Sorry. Um, <laughs> that's my main focus of study, but it's like um, some of my biggest advocates have been guys born in the 30s i don't mean to name drop but somebody who um was a real big supporter of, of space hipsters was al warden who passed away last year he was a huge supporter when i was in a room and he was there nobody would mess with me because he had my back you know um fred hayes has been really supportive of our group and uh i also want to give a you know a big shout out ed gibson uh, the Skylab astronaut, he's been hugely supportive of my career. Uh, a few months ago, I was listening to a BBC history podcast, and it was about the Skylab strike that didn't happen. And they covered it, and I'm just listening to it. And all of a sudden, he's, you know, he says, yeah, you know, you're the only reporter who's asked about this other than Emily Carney. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but a lot of men from that era have been remarkably supportive and i think very progressive they've been remarkably you know supportive to me and i think a lot of women in this community so i really wanted to you know sort of emphasize what christina said it sounds counterintuitive but it's not yeah no i'm i you know the apollo guys for the most part i i can only say that there's only one time where i was told to go away by one and i was pretty irritated about it and buzz was about ready to go over and stomp over and say why did you tell christina to walk away but then i found out that he was the other one was telling a dirty joke and he didn't want to tell it in front of me. So he thought he was being respectful <laughs> by telling me. To go away. <laughs> so, anyway. You told him you had five brothers. <laughs> you I know. probably heard the joke. <laughs> you said, you, hey, you should hear how a couple of my sisters talk. <laughs> well, I, I could say, I wanted to make a, one comment uh, about Dave's um, discussion there about how men can kind of help convert other men. I think there's a, there's a body of men that will never be converted. I think there's a body of men who, you know, from my era, who are, you know, maybe in the fall in the mode of not ever being convertible, but we're dying out. I mean, our, it's going to be a generational thing. And I think the younger people are going to be coming aboard or who have been working with women all their life. And it's going to, it's going to go away generationally, I think to a large degree. But what I would, what I tell people is, you know, you, at, at 75, you really start uh, thinking about 
you know, the end. And I, I tell people, you know, there's going to be a day where you're going to sit there in a doctor's office and he's going to look here at you and say, you've got six months left or you got a year left or something. And you ought to be thinking right now in your youth that the cure for whatever it is that he's talking about was locked up in the brain of a woman or a gay person or a person of color. And because they didn't have the opportunity to develop the opportunities to bring that to fruition, to bring that out there, uh, you're now in this situation where, you know, you're going <laughs> to you're going to pass along. And do you really want to take that risk that the, the cure out there resides in somebody's brain who you've always looked upon as as somehow uh, dismissed them, basically, whether it's gender, uh, religion, ethnic background, color, sexual orientation, whatever. So I'm, I'm a big believer. Everybody, we need to empower everybody. Everybody should be able to bring their best to the table and develop it. And that certainly includes women uh, to a huge degree. Absolutely. And I think a lot of organizations, including NASA, are wearing that mantra on their sleeve. Sorry to mix metaphors there. But, you know, the Artemis astronauts are the next set of astronauts that are going to go to the moon. Uh, they've been announced recently and there's a 50-50 gender split. And you look at the control room uh, at JPL from when, when Perseverance landed last week. And it's a it's a great split. It's a great cross-section of society in that room. And that's wonderful to see. Uh, and I wonder if, if they feel the weight of that on their shoulders, uh, like the likes of Sally Ride and Judy Resnick would have felt uh, years ago. I'm wondering, Mike, if you have some insight into that. Did the, the first six female US astronauts that were in your class embrace being a role model or did they find it difficult? And is there something we can learn going forward uh, for these these new role models that we have? To my perception, they were very communicative to younger students about, hey, you know, study your math, qualify yourself to apply for these positions. So um, I think uh, some of them probably were better at it because it involved public speaking. So, you know, that's one of those things that we all don't really like to do, or most of us don't like to do. Uh, so some of them were more uh, out there than others were. Uh, but I think they all definitely wanted to be trailblazers for, for women so that, you know, young girls in school and, the you know, elementary school and high school and such would someday be engineering women out there who were, you know, uh, leading the charge in some uh, part of the space program. The, th the thing I, I think that, uh, that we, we got to do is get more young women, uh, young girls in the, in the junior, in the elementary and middle schools and them to really think about uh, a career in space and science. I, I do a lot of uh, speaking at corporations, and but I made it a purpose having six, having four granddaughters to ask when I saw a woman in a non-traditional woman role uh, as an engineer or as an executive in some company, how they, you know, what was their career path to get there? I'll never forget this one. I was talking to a oil company, a major oil company, their employees, and I, there was a woman there who was a chemical engineer. And she was being uh, employed by the company to go out into schools to encourage uh, young girls to get degrees in, in engineering, chemical engineering, and to tell you know her story about what a great life it is. I work for a great company, have great health care, have great salary, all of these things. And she says it is it was just so hard. I mean, she she mentioned about working for all company and. Question, well, don't you get dirty all day long? Aren't you dirty? He says, I'm not out drilling oil wells. I work in a laboratory. 
You know, I, I'm in a white coat like a doctor working in a laboratory. There's all sorts of roles associated with what these industries are that don't, you know, don't put you out in the field, but are critical to the success of the mission. I tell you, this really shocked me one day. I flew with Judy Resnick and one of my granddaughters, she's pretty young at the time, but I, still it shocked me that she could even ask the question. Uh, somebody said something about a lady astronaut and she said, ladies can't be astronauts. And I thought, I have pictures of me with Judy Resnick and you know these other women astronauts, but somehow even in her era and exposed to that, to having a grandfather that was an astronaut, she couldn't get her head, her young head. I mean, she was really young. I mean, she's probably like, I don't know, six years old or something, but uh, she couldn't see it. Uh, that that kind of shocked me. So that's what we have to do is is really encourage you know young girls at very early days to to really think about space and science. And obviously, uh, NASA is the is the go to place for that to have not only the astronaut women but also the astronaut engineers. Uh, you looked at that uh, JPL and the women that were in there. I mean, I hope to, they're out there in the schools really pumping up uh, young girls to, hey, study math, study science. This is a career that's open to you. Don't think just because you're a girl that somehow, you know, it's it's not open. Uh, just, I'll get off my pulpit. Did you know Joanne Morgan? Uh, what, what position was she in? Well, so Joanne Morgan was the first female engineer at Kennedy Space Center. So she was the only woman in the room when Apollo 11 lifted off when she oh, was I in. I did not, no. I... So we gave her an award and I just wanted to bring up because she um, she said when she applied for an internship back in the um, uh, ballistic missile phase before NASA was formed, they had a, two internships and she said it said students, it didn't say boys. So she applied and she got selected. So she was the only woman in uh, mission control at Kennedy Space Center for the first 10 years. And she said the guys were pretty mean to her. I mean, they would hit oh, her, they would come in and slap her on the back. They would, um, she didn't have a bathroom. It was like the hidden figures thing. She had to walk to a whole new area, other area to get a bathroom, go to the bathroom. And she was saying that um, they kept, NASA kept wanting to do interviews with her because she was very attractive too. And she kept saying no, because it took her a long time to get accepted in the room. And she didn't want the guys to give her a hard time. Oh, now you think you're more special than us. You're going to do interviews. But I guess in the 70s, she was with NASA for 30 something years. And she was a, like one of the most, she was the first most senior woman, I think, at NASA, um, uh, at Kennedy Space Center. And she said um, in the early 70s, she finally did an interview. And she said she got bombarded with third grade girls sending her letters in the mail saying, I didn't know girls could be an engineer. And she said she realized she made a huge mistake by not doing the interviews because she just want, she didn't want to rock the boat. She didn't want the guys to give her a hard time. And she just wanted to keep her job and all of that. But she didn't realize how much that representation made an impact on all these young girls. And so I have to say, honestly, I think that it's it's not in a great state still right now, even though we do have 50 percent of the astronaut class as women. You know, I still think that the messaging is not great for women going into those realms. And I think that's the ones who really want it and somehow see it 
my daughter's nine years old and for her she thinks she's going to be a geologist and astronaut it's just reality to her she's just mm. like well when i go to space you know and i'm i'm glad that she thinks this way but i don't think it's that great and i realize so if you're paying attention to my social media right now it's black history month so i'm posting every day about a different scientist or astronaut or engineer in space specifically and I cannot believe how many people in the space community don't know who any of those people are. And that means that nobody's seeing it, that it's not representation. So I'll just say one more thing that, so they announced Artemis and I think it's amazing. The goddess of the moon, the twin sister of Apollo. I think there's such a huge opportunity here to tie to the epic, like kind of grandeur of what Apollo did and, and how they tied it to mythology. Except for the problem is one day, one of my friends who worked in the White House, one of the space guys called me up and said, I need to, I need to get your opinion. They keep talking about Artemis and I don't believe them. I don't believe Artemis. And I, he said, what do you think about it? I said, well, I think it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's exciting to have the first woman to go to the moon. But I think the reason you say that is because every time they talk about Artemis, it's a room full of white guys. And you'd never see a woman saying, I'm going to the moon. And that I think would change everything. Because even when they do the astronaut announcements, they're preaching to the, to the, to the space choir. Yeah. You know, the space choir is gonna pay attention to that. And I'm telling you, the mainstream people outside that world, they do not know. And I was, I've been talking to some black nurses in Colorado who really wanna go to space. And this is something recently that I gotta be in my bonnet about um, nurses being a non-qualifying profession to apply to be an astronaut, um, which is crazy to me. So uh, I, I've been talking to these nurses, these black nurses who mentor kids in Colorado to try through space to try to get them into STEM fields. And I started talking about Artemis. They had no idea what I was talking about. And this last month, this is not, yeah. you know, these are very invested like women who are trying to educate and mentor other kids using space to inspire them. And they don't know what Artemis is. So NASA has to do a better job or get some more allies outside of the space world. And that's what I'm always trying to do because I'm a believer, you know, everybody knows in my whole world now that I'm a space cadet. They know I'm in, but they don't understand what's going on. They don't really, they don't know there's six people up in orbit you know, around earth all the time. That's very, very, like very small portion of the proper uh, population pays attention to that. So I say all that in that I think that, you know, there are opportunities, lots of opportunities for women and girls, but I don't think the messaging is there yet um, to make people understand that there's a place for them. So not just NASA, but just in general, there needs to be a better, broader aware awareness about it. And then I think more girls will, because I don't think, like my daughter, she doesn't think she can't do anything. She's pretty invincible. So, you know, you know, I think she just assumes she's going to be an astronaut. Actually, she complained to me when I said how long it will take to get to Mars. She's like, don't take, tell me how long it's going to take, mama. You're going to, don't be trying to talk me out of going. <laughs> um, I do have to add, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, I don't want to nitpick or criticize NASA, but I think that, I almost think that the uh, representation was better back in my day, like back in the eighties than it is now, because like you said, there's no woman saying, Hey, I'm going to the moon, you know, not yet anyway. Like we haven't um, seen any, like, I guess ads or anything kind of tailored towards that. 
um, in the 80s, and back to Judy Resnick again, um, I love talking about her because she was my idol growing up. Um, I was a young Jewish girl growing up in the 80s. That was back when NASA would send you awesome stuff in the mail if you wrote them. You know, nowadays, you probably can go online and get everything. But <laughs> back in the day, I would write them letters. They probably thought I was a stalker or something. I'll never forget seeing, you know, a picture of Judy Resnick, you know, operating the RMS, the remote uh, manipulator system in the shuttle. And she's, you know, she's wearing shorts. She's got a beautiful tan. Her hair is like really like, you know, boof, bouffant, you know, and stuff like that. She's wearing sunglasses. I, I remember being like six years old seeing that. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. Even if I don't become an astronaut, she's just a badass. Like she has a certain type of freedom. You know, that's what I wanted as a kid. And um, that honestly changed my life. So we need to I think we need to see more imagery of things like that. It doesn't have to be necessarily Judy Resnick, but just, you know, women working in the ISS, you know, and just being unapolo unapologetically um, just themselves. She looked like she was having the time of her life. And um, and then I read more about her biography. I was like, oh, she's Jewish? You know, she's... Because you didn't see that a lot when I was growing up in Florida. So representation is important. So that was something for me that was just honestly life-changing. I agree with um, Christina. I feel like the generation now needs something similar to that where they can look at, look to her as you, you would say in your hashtag, and just say, okay, this is something to aspire to, you know? But also cool. I mean, the Apollo astronauts were always standing with cor Corvettes. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff worked. That got people like, that's what I want to be. And, and I don't want to necessarily criticize NASA either, but I do think that their needs, they've gotten almost so risk averse of anything that it's hard mm -hmm. to even like, they're so afraid um, to not fit within the guidelines, the guidelines they've made for themselves, that it sometimes is so restricting that I think that they're missing a big opportunity to kind of capture people more in the mainstream. Absolutely. But I think there's an opportunity for private enterprise to get involved there uh, and potentially do stuff that the uh, NASA couldn't do. For example, the Inspiration4 crew, which is the, the first commercial crew ever to go to space. Uh, the second member of that crew has been announced recently, and, and it's a 29-year-old woman who also is an amputee and a cancer survivor. An amazing story. And there's photos of her standing in front of the Falcon 9 rocket. And it's it's really cool. Uh, and I think it can reach people, except they announced it the day that Percy landed on Mars. So it didn't get the coverage, which it probably should should get. But uh, these private companies can do things differently. For example, NASA would never have sent uh, a Tesla into space. <laughs> no, you could be sure of that. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. It opened the door. It got people interested. It, it reached out to some people who didn't know what was going on and got them interested and finding out more about SpaceX and hang on a moment, these rockets land vertically? What's that all about? And I think that the entertainment industry has also got a role to play here in assigning more female leads in space movies. I know it is happening and we're getting more of that, but that's the kind of thing that can inspire a, a child to say... I can be, or a young girl to say, I can be an astronaut. That, that is a role that's open to me, which is important. But also a lot of the, the historical uh, space movies or, or the most of the documentaries are about the Apollo era where 
it is all men. And there are great women who who haven't been represented uh, in a movie. Like, there's not a movie about Judy Resnick. Why not? You know, or Eileen Collins or Nicole Stott, who Christina works with. There's plenty of opportunities uh, to to get some good uh, films which are going to capture a youngster's imagination and say, I can do that. I'm working on some projects with Nicole Stott, like you were saying. We're working on something that I'm, I can't really announce yet because we're still um, in development of it. But part of what we want to showcase is that astronauts are people <laughs> like, you know, that they're they're they can be funny. They can be clumsy. They can be just regular grouchy people sometimes, you know, that they're not. I, I, someone said to me once. Um, astronauts of the elite humans. And I'm like, nah, nah, just no. as flawed as the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that old, you, you might be too young to know that expression when you talk about the equality of people like uh, in a sports teams getting ready to play the their arch enemy and say, well, they put their pants on one one leg at a time. If you ever, ever heard that expression, you're like, we're all equal. You, they put their, go out there and beat them on the gridiron. You know, they put their pants on one leg at a time. But I've joked with people for, well, when you're an astronaut, you can put your pants on two legs at a time because you're floating around <laughs> <in> space. <laughs> Trying to get the entertainment community involved, certainly, I think would be a big step. Well, and I think, you know, like that, telling a joke like that, like one, one, one thing I will say for astronauts is they, they do so many interviews. I know you ask the same questions over and over and over. And so you get into the habit of saying the same answer. So if there's more opportunities where astronauts can be themselves and then really, really talk about what made you want to become an astronaut and then even just how, you know, you're not always perfect. And some, like, some people don't understand how many times some people had to apply to become an astronaut, you know, and how hard that was. And that's just how much they wanted it. And I, that's what I usually say to people is um, the difference between, I think, astronauts and most smart people is that they're willing to keep trying and to and to take the risk. And I think that that's an important message that maybe doesn't, you know, get across a lot of times. People just assume you're just the smartest people ever. <laughs> that, and I'm not saying you're not smart, but I, I think that some people don't understand that it really is a, a desire and a hunger and then also the willingness to put yourself out there and the risk of it. I, yeah. I always say that... Uh, I love space, not just because of the space, but because of the human stories are always involved with it. Um, and and that makes me think that, do you, do you think that NASA is sometimes a little bit shy at showing those human stories because of the argument that comes up a time and time again of why are you spending our tax money on this? For example, there was a video that went viral again recently of Scott Kelly when he was on the International Space Station doing his year in space, uh, they sent up a, a gorilla costume for him and he put it on and did a practical joke on Tim Peake. Very funny, great video. And in the comments, you guarantee that, the, that, that there's going to be someone saying, I can't believe they spent our money on doing that. But it's videos like that which are going to connect with people, right? And and Mike, do you, is your experience of NASA that that they're they're shy in that regard or scared of scared of what people are going to say? Well, as I I tell you right now that NASA when I was there did not like uh, we had these press conferences after a flight and we always had had a movie that we prepared ahead of time showing some of the highlights of the mission and crews would include the funny stuff um, just water floating around and playing with it or throwing M&Ms in it, just, just kind of obviously nothing scientific associated with it. 
And uh, the PR people at, at NASA told us to kind of knock that off or keep it very brief in your in your press conference films for that very reason. Uh, in fact, I have to when I was out on the road showing my press conference videos of uh, SCS 27. Uh, it was a classified mission. We couldn't show anything about what we were doing up there. So the only thing we could show is some <laughs> some of these silly stuff like the football game that we had up there and the baseball game with the M&Ms, that type of stuff, because you know, we, we had nothing else to show. Uh, same with STS-36. So um, anyway, there's no question that NASA doesn't like to see the ta- or have the, the taxpayers perceive that their dollars are being trivially spent. Again, it's a spin thing, though, isn't it? We, I mean, somehow NASA or, or us as the space community have to figure out a way to spin these stories because I think, you know, the value of seeing astronauts being humans in space is is amazing. That's what we want. And with respect, when you show a kid uh, or a young girl a video of people having fun in space or hears them growing radishes on the ISS, which as, as amazing as that is that they're doing that, it's not going to part plant the seed, pardon the pun, uh, on, on many kids, whereas a gorilla suit or baseball with M&Ms or, or fun with the water may plant that seed with I the agree. kids. I love the water shots. I love when you guys play with water. <laughs> I do. It's fast. It is. Like I tell people, it's fascinating to see fluids are floating around in the cockpit, except for some fluids you wish you hadn't seen floating around <laughs> in the cockpit. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I tell you too, uh, after I retired as an astronaut, because my whole life was so focused on on the, the space business and when everybody around it was enthusiastic, jumping up and cheering and thing, you, know, you sort of think that most people are like that. And when I went out there, I was appalled as a retired astronaut now and I'd go out and people would ask me questions. And at first I thought they were kidding me. I, I, I thought it was a joke. And it took me a while to realize, no, they are that abysmally ignorant of basic science that they were asking this question. Uh, I, I came to believe that there is a huge population out there that has never looked up. Seriously, who has never looked up, looked through a telescope at the moon, gone out to look at a meteor shower, a comet, an eclipse. I mean, it's hard to imagine that, but it just seems to me there's a huge population that just never tilts their head up and looks at it, wonders about it, and thinks about how we can get up there and get closer to some of these things and learn about them. It just that's 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 where you you got a lot. A huge mountain to climb there is getting people to to think outside of their normal box and start thinking of of uh, the vertical and not just the horizontal. That makes me. I want to tell a really fast story because you made me think about the looking up. I met these women who hired Buzz to give a speech for a Six Sigma's. I don't know one of those Sigma things. I don't know. Anyway, but they said we have to tell you where we were when you walked on the moon. We lived in Turkey in a village with no electricity and no running water. Our mother couldn't read or write. Our father had a fifth grade education. And, but our father was very committed to us girls getting an education. He was very, very supportive of us, of, of trying to do better. And he thought women will save the world. This is what they said. And so anyway, they thought, okay, well, we're going to become teachers. That will be the next stage, you know, for our parents who don't have much of an education. But they listened to the moon landing. Their father bought a Grundig radio. And they said everyone in their village came and listened 
listened to the moon landing. And they said when they heard they did it, they said, we felt like we did it. And then they said everyone was hugging and crying and cheering. She's, and then I said, and then what happened? They said everyone went outside and sat down on the ground and looked up at the moon. And everyone was quiet. And I said, well, what did it make you think? And they said it made us realize we could aim higher. We could aim higher than we were going to aim before. So the older sister went on to get her PhD in quantum physics and Mars regular. Oh. <laughs> and the other one went on to get her MBA and they live in California and they, she's got a very successful company. And I was like, wow. And that, that yeah. was what, you know, that kind of inspiration, that kind of spark is what we need again. That kind of thing changed, changed some girls' lives who come from a place that didn't even have anything, you know, remotely close to what they were looking at. But they thought, wow, if men could walk on the moon, just think what we could do. We could aim higher. So we need that moment again, I think. My takeaway in this conversation is that NASA can only do so much. They're really not going to be able to pull it off. I think that uh, as far as you know, getting kids early on, young girls early on to be thinking about a career in the sciences and engineering and, and such and space program. Uh, but Hollywood, I, I really think Hollywood can make a big difference. You know, why doesn't Disney do it? You know, they do all these superhero uh, uh cartoon uh, anima animated films uh, where they do have women as heroes. How about making one of the, the hero being a, a, a female astronaut, you know, in one of their animated uh, programs and some of these and do some of these other things about, you know, a real slick three minute uh, intro to a, to a science fiction movie that they got going about, you know, some astronaut talking about, about their experience, some female astronaut talking about their experiences. They get huge support from society if they did something like that, actually the way to do it is having a, a young girl who somehow accidentally becomes an astronaut and is the hero in it. So young girls are out there saying, I want to be that, you know, and you know, that, that plants the seed. There needs to be a lot more of it. There, there has been some stuff on Netflix lately. So if you don't have kids, you may not be aware, but my kids watch a lot of that stuff, which is why they're also pretty invested. So I will say for young kids, there's actually kind of a lot of stuff. But oh, maybe, I, well, I don't have kids, so maybe I just said something that they're already doing. No, 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 what I was going to say, but I don't know about for the teenagers and the young adults. You know what I mean? Like, I think for young kids, there's there's a pretty good, what is that? Oh, For All Mankind. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> for All Mankind, uh, we've talked about it in the last few weeks, the alternate history that's on Apple TV. Um, I don't want to provide too many spoilers, but there are women heroes. The show presupposes that the Soviets landed on the moon first and other things and as a result uh with, there are women apollo astronauts on the show mm. who walk on the moon it's probably more appropriate for young adults there's cussing in the show but um we talked to the creator last week ronald d moore in our last podcast and i think that show is also sort of groundbreaking in that you know it shows that okay women are in this capacity you know and women can kind of have that heroic role to me that's another great example of you know what entertainment can do and i think for perhaps younger women i mean i love the show because i'm a space nerd you know so i was gonna like it anyway but i think it, its production qualities are so good and it's so engaging that perhaps you know a young woman seeing that could be like hmm that that's kind of neat you know they tried to do it with a way but oh, the yeah. way did it very well right yeah I, I love that one it's a shame they didn't, didn't continue that christina before we finish uh I'm very aware that you're doing a lot of big picture thinking 
and uh, like you had your um, her story 100 thing that that was amazing, and you've got various other things on the go. So can you just talk to us of some of your your bigger plans and 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 how they come about and what your ideas are with those? Well, it was that um, clearly a hundred years after women got the right to, or I shouldn't say got the right, women won and earned the right to vote. Um, I think that the women from a hundred years ago would be kind of pissed off about what some of the stuff we still don't have, you know, as far as like pay disparity and, and still, you know, dealing with some, some issues that we wouldn't think we would have to be dealing with a hundred years later. And so I just wanted to get some of the women who've actually gotten to a certain place to talk about why it's matters to not take the pedal off the metal and just assume that everybody's fine and everything's fine. And, you know, everything's fixed because it, it's going to be a work in progress for a long time. And how the idea that, you know, even women who have been astronauts or who are senior engineers or whatever, that they all understand that they also are representing something. When I've learned some of the stuff that some of the women at NASA have accomplished behind the scenes, like even uh, Mary Jackson and Gladys West, you know, contributing to GPS and and things like that, that we totally use every day. And people don't know a woman's role, you know, especially a woman's role of color. That's what I'm kind of trying to do is to remind people that there are women who've made it, but they too understand that you can't just assume that everything's fine, that everything is fixed and that there's not going to still be any obstacles. My other project I was trying to do, which I'm still trying to do, by the way, was to projection map and add women to Mount Rushmore. And the idea with that was not somebody at one point said, are you trying to cover up the men? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. You can't erase history. And I'm not trying to erase history. I'm trying to say, if we add some women up to the same level of respect and honor that these men have been held, it might help draw attention to some of these women who accomplished a lot of amazing things that maybe the mainstream world hasn't paid attention to. I was only focused on suffragists because I was working with the U.S. government. But if I had my way, I'd put Sally Wright up there. I'd put Amelia Earhart up there. You know, the idea that you could see women, you know, who 100 years ago were working and 50 and 30 years ago, you know, who maybe some people know, but the whole world will pay attention to that because like you say, you, you look in a device, the news cycle is so fast. So I'm trying to get people's attention in a really, really big way that you can't miss. Sally Ride on Mount Rushmore. Yes, I, I, I can buy into that. By the way, uh, I, I, you may have heard me say this before. I've, I've said it before to a couple of interviews and such. But, um, you know, I, after I left NASA, I really looked back and, you know, just, you know, didn't like what I was there in the early years. And uh, I kept thinking, I need to write Sally Wright a letter of apology and, and just say, hey, I was part of the problem. Uh, nobody should be uh, having to perform you know, twice as good as, as a man to be perceived as an equal, that type of thing. I just, I just felt bad about how I had acted and I kept putting it off. Yeah, I need, and then one morning, hear that she had died. Uh, I, nobody in the astronaut community was aware of it. It came as a shock that, you know, she died of pancreatic cancer. And it's one of those things too, there's a message here is that, you know, our tomorrow, tomorrow's aren't guaranteed. So if you need to uh, close a loop with somebody you may have ill-treated, you better do it and not put it off. Well, anyway, at that point I did sit down and I wrote a letter to her partner uh, and to 
her sister, I believe, uh, that uh, I said, hey, I was part of the problem back there. I've uh, changed, you know, decades ago I changed, but I just wanted to say, say that how I wish I could have been a better man when I was there working with her and the other, other women. Uh, so, you know, it's, I'm not, yeah, I'm not uh, kidding when I said I made that conversion, full conversion, absolute full conversion. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I did. And I, I just regret that I ever had to do it uh, to, you know, go back and apologize to somebody, and particularly apologize to a partner. I couldn't do it to Sally. Um, and by the way, she wrote back, her partner wrote back a very nice letter to me, which I thought was above and beyond the call of duty for her. Uh, but I'm glad I did it, at least in some form. It's, even this, this is wonderful because maybe a guy who might think might be having doubts about the way he's handled things, maybe hearing you, mm. from you, you know, mm. like 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 Dave was saying, is going to get through far more than what I say or what Emily says. Mike, that's that's such a powerful story, but I'm aware that not every man has a story that they can share like that with their friends who may not yet be with us. And I'm wondering if there is something that, that we can give a, a, a quote. There was a, you gave a great one earlier, um, but is, is there one final thought we can have, we can take away that we can say to someone who isn't with us, who's not yet there, who is one of those people that Emily has to block on almost a daily basis because they are crossing the line. Um, how can we get that point across that, that um, we, we want, women involved in this and we are better because women are involved in this um I'll, I'll open that up all i would be able to do is say exactly what you said i mean if somebody's if somebody's locking their brain to anything coming in on the subject you're just wasting your breath on it and there's going to be those people out there uh, but i would certainly tell them that uh america will be the best it possibly can be in arts sports science uh everything when everybody can bring their best to the table regardless of their gender regardless of their color religion ethnic background any of that other stuff says and you ought to think about that just imagine a country where everybody has got their best on the table to work with we'd we'd be a superpower beyond superpower that's that's wonderful per period yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't even add to that. That was like a perfect. Yeah, statement. I agree. I think that's that's rounded it up, lovely. So thank you so much for giving giving your time uh, time to us, and uh, I I think this is this is going to be a wonderful episode when we put this together. So I really thank you for your time and uh, and, and good luck with your your future endeavors. Well, thank you very much, and it was a pleasure talking to everybody. Likewise, I'm gonna have to get your book, Mike. Oh, just. <laughs> Just read it to the end to see my conversion. <laughs> <laughs> when you were a little girl growing up in Akron, Ohio, did you say, gee, I'd like to be an astronaut someday? No, I really didn't think about it until about four years ago when NASA announced that they were looking for astronauts who would be uh, engineers and scientists on the space shuttle. And it was accidental that I heard about it, and I just took a chance and applied. Well, we actually were speaking for an hour and a half with Mike and Christina. So obviously we've edited quite a lot out, but the full interview is available on our patreon for you to to go and check out at your leisure uh if you're a member of our patreon page and of course you can sign up at any point at patreon.com forward slash space and things um 
But yeah, that was really wonderful. And I'd like to think that we've been mostly preaching to the converted or 100% preaching converted. Uh, but there's a chance that, that there is a chance that you may feel like you've been attacked by some of the things that you said. If you have, you probably not got to this point in the podcast. Uh, but I have put a link to a, an article which uh, I really found useful when when things like this would happen in my life and I'd be like, well, not all men are bad. And if you're someone who's saying that right now, then I suggest you read this article and, and it helped me understand things a, a little bit a little bit better, or a lot better, in fact. Um, and if you hadn't picked up on it in the interview, you really should read Mike's book, Riding Rockets, as well. So, Emily, how do you... What are your feelings after that? Because I'm buzzing, but also inspired. Oh, gosh. Um like we discussed in the panel, uh, I do have military background and obviously Mike Mullane does as well. He was in the Air Force. He went to West Point back in his day, back when he was coming through West Point. It was the late 60s and early 70s. The military was predominantly male back then. I think there were probably a few women like he said, you know, it's fair to assume that he probably worked with no women during that time um, to hear a man talk about I started out, you know, having these attitude, this attitude towards, you know, women when I started out in my career versus, you know, I saw, you know, women like Judy Resnick working in the field and I saw how competent and not just competent, but how brilliant they were to hear a man from that kind of background say that for me has been really helpful sort of in my own healing and also reading writing rockets as well, because just hearing a man admit, okay, I started out this way. But over time, you know, I saw how my thinking was based on, you know, my own experiences. You, you see what I'm saying? Because I mm. don't want to demonize anybody. Yeah, you don't get to choose the world you're brought into, though. Yeah. So it's one of those tough, tough things because we, we, people shouldn't have to necessarily apologize for for who they who they are. But once these things are pointed out to you that they're not right or once you real have those realizations yourself you've got to do something about it uh, and and there's plenty of things that you think are probably good things that you do they're nice things you probably think you're doing like being you probably think you're being polite by using a pet name or something like that but actually someone may not like that or not enjoy it or find it condescending and it's important that you're always analyzing your own actions and to hear Mike talk about it, to hear someone who's had Mike's background go through that process and hear some of his sound bites from that interview are just truly inspiring. It really gets me anyway. Yeah. And I was also touched by uh, what Christina was talking about. First of all, she's a powerhouse. She's incredible. I, I would not mess with her. She's a tough lady. And um, also, I was greatly touched by, you know, what she shared about her experiences um, with uh, she was Buzz Aldrin's uh, manager for quite some time. And I hate to say this. I kind of came with a preconceived notion of Buzz Aldrin because he was born, I think, in 1930, you know, and uh, there's part of me that stereotypes some of the Apollo guys because some of them are that typical, hey, baby, you know. Some of them are like that, you know, and they are from that generation post World War II, but pre-Korea sort of. So they might have some behavior that's of that time. There's a memoir by Jim Irwin called, I think it's called To Rule the Night. And it's a good book. It's, it's, it's interesting to read, but when you read it, you can tell he's definitely a man from his time. Yeah. 
if you, I think it was written in 1973 or 74. So again, you have to think of the context of that. Exactly. As well. He was writing it from the perspective of a man who was born in 1930 and he's writing it in the early seventies and gender norms had not really, you know, been challenged as much as they have now. Yeah. I mean, there's still, there still wasn't any women astronauts at that point, even in the office, not let alone ready for a flight. Exactly. So that, when I read that book, I was like, you know, and I've met Jim Irwin before when he was still alive and he was, I was a very little kid, of course, very little girl. He was wonderful to me. He was, he was, I don't want to, cancel him or make it sound like oh he was a bad guy or anything but he was a man of his time but i do want to say um i kind of had a preconceived notion because i've never met buzz aldrin i know honestly i've read some of his books but i really i've never met him so i don't know honestly much about him but i do have to say hearing her talk about buzz being very supportive of her and being you know really like hey don't mess with her you know that for me was like okay there are guys from that generation who really do break the mold and i do have to say my own experiences and i did mention this in the in the panel you know i've gotten some wonderful support from guys of that era yeah uh, and it was great to hear that from christina and and the the conversation about the importance of allies uh, and I really think that Mike is is a wonderful ally, and and I keep saying we need to read his book, but you need to read his book. But he gave some wonderful quotes in that interview as well in that panel. You know, when he started talking about the fact he's he's seventy five, and yeah, I, I try not to think about death too much because I, I I'm pretty sure I'm pretty far away from it. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. I you know I'm I'm kind of in my midlife now, and ha- hearing him say that, it was like. You know, I do kind of think like that sometimes, like, okay, I'm in my midlife. What do I want to live my life like for the rest of my life? You could Mm. change certain Mm. things now. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You know, you could change certain things about yourself that you don't like anytime, or you could reach out to somebody who maybe you've had a bad time with, or you've had not great experiences with, or maybe we're not fair to, and you could hopefully change things. It's, It's something I think to think about. Definitely. Yeah, and and that whole idea of uh, the, the thing that might change the world may be inside the head of a of a woman or a person of color or, or someone yeah. that historically the world has has looked down on as not being good enough, uh, and how we will all be better if everyone gets to unlock their full potential. I just found that so inspiring, and I'm so glad he, he said it so eloquently and wonderfully, and that's going to stay with me for a very long time. Yes. And thus uh, ends the first ever Space and Things panel. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it because I certainly did. Absolutely. That's it for this week. We'll be back with all the news we've missed and much more next week. Uh, We'd love to do more of this kind of episode. So if there are any topics that you'd like uh, for us to cover, uh, please do get in touch. Yeah, uh, or if you have any thoughts on what's been discussed and want to carry on the conversation, please just drop us a tweet or send us a message on Facebook. But as always, we ask you to remember, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>